Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. week on PA Books, Ashley Rubin, author of The Deviant Prison. Ashley Rubin is the author of The Deviant Prison, Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary and the Origins of America's Modern Penal System, 1829 to 1913. How did you become interested in the history of prisons? I, it all goes back to a college class I had um, my sophomore year at college of, uh, at UC Berkeley. Um, I was taking a class on the history of crime and punishment and Eastern is basically covered in any class that you're going to uh, talk about crime and punishment history in the U.S. Um, and so that was my first exposure to it. And ever since I was hooked, um, so I did my uh, my uh, college thesis on it, and then I knew I was going to do my dissertation on it. Um, so it just all goes back to that class. What's it like to kind of be enveloped in prisons and re reading the, the documents? And it's not always the most pleasant environment. What is that like as a researcher? Yeah, it, it's funny. Um, one of my college classes, I had a professor who was teaching a class on punishment, on the philosophy of punishment. And I said I wanted to specialize in, in the study of punishment. And he was like, that's a very ghoulish endeavor. And I thought, like, you're the professor of a, of a punishment class. So on the one hand, it is kind of weird because you're, you know, constantly reading about horrible things that are happening to people. And um, like some of it's quite graphic and, and terrible and, and really upsetting. Um, on another level, it's also tricky because it has like you really want to do a good job because it has such high consequences um, like you always want to do good research but especially when you know it's about something that's controversial you want to make sure that you're especially you know careful about your research um, but mostly it's just it's interesting to me like I'm just I'm completely fascinated by um, by prisons by punishment by changes and like why for example capital punishment becomes less popular at one time and another time it becomes more popular or like why we switch from one type to another or like where one type of prison comes from because we have all these different types of prisons um and so those questions that they just um that just these puzzles that i want to solve um so I, I i just enjoy it well let's just talk about some of that history what what was punishment like in colonial america uh, it was um it was bad <laughs> it was painful and it was public um, so the, the kind of modal punishment was um, was public, corporal, or capital punishment. Um, and by corporal, I mean things like um, branding, whipping. Um, we didn't really do a lot of like cutting off people's hands and things, but like branding and whipping were um, were some pretty big ones. Or spending time in the pillory or the stocks, which were these wooden devices in like the town square or the town center, where somebody would spend um, time kind of um, hooked up to this wooden device, uh, either with like their hands up or sometimes their legs too would be um, in these wooden devices and then people would come around and kind of make fun of them or sometimes uh, injure them in various ways, throw stuff at them, um, taunt them generally. Um, and so somebody could spend like an hour in the pillar of the stocks or they could spend a day in the pillar of the stocks. Um, and so that was kind of the, the, the lighter end of punishment. Um, and then on the uh, more severe side, it was capital punishment. So we had a lot of capital offenses at the time. Right now, for example, in most um, in most states that still have capital punishment, it's just murder is, is a capital offense or, or treason. Um, but at the time, there was a whole range of things, including property offenses, as well as a number of violent offenses, 
things like burglary, robbery, and so on. Um, so throughout the colonial period, we had a, a quite a range of capital offenses, which means a lot of people were eligible for, um, for an execution. Um, and then when it came to the executions, there was quite a range of how, how bad it could get. Um, in the uh, 18th century, we mostly used hanging. Um, and at the time, it was like a strangulation style hanging um, where it, 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 it took a while. It was not pleasant. Eventually, they used a, a drop style hanging that would snap people's neck. Um, but after somebody was then executed, then they would do things to their bodies. So they might dis dissect them, which was especially bad under current religious beliefs or then current religious beliefs. Um, and then sometimes they would put their body in a cage and hang it outside um, the kind of entrance to the town to remind people coming into the town, like outsiders, you know, we take justice seriously here. Um, so there's a range of things that, that they could do um, to make capital punishment even worse. And then kind of um, to make capital punishment a little bit better, uh, people could be pardoned at the very last minute. So they would go up to the scaffold, they would get the rope around their neck. And then like a writer would come into town and say like, you know, I have a, I have a pardon, um, you're, you're off the hook essentially. And so um, they would do that. And then there's another version of punishment where you just stay on the gallows. You knew ahead of time you weren't gonna die, but they would put the noose around your neck and it was to show you how close you came to, um, to an execution. Um, so again, all of these were public. Um, they were usually kind of circulating around the body um, or focused on the body. Um, they tended to be pretty painful and uncomfortable. Um, and, and a lot of times there was also like a fine included as well for the, um, the non-fatal uh, uh, punishments. Um, yeah, so those were the kind of main forms of punishment before the American Revolution. Did the American Revolution and its idealism have any impact on how people thought about criminal punishment afterwards? Oh yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, so for some people it was the, um, the experience of, of being um, essentially criminals. Uh, so it, the rebels were criminals, essentially. Um, there's all those famous lines about, you know, if we if we don't stick together, we'll hang alone um, and, and those sorts of things. So this kind of sense of like, we can all be criminals. Um, a lot of Quakers during the revolution were accused of being loyalists, in some cases were loyalists. And so they were also um, a, a processed through the criminal justice system, in some cases executed as well. Um, so a lot of people got firsthand experience with the criminal justice system in the way that they hadn't before. Um, and then in terms of the kind of ideology of the, the revolution, um, there were kind of a couple of dimensions to this. One was just the enlightenment generally was kind of um, that helped to kind of inspire the revolution. Um, we start to get a lot of new ideas about what punishment should be like um, and what the limits are of government um, power over individual citizens, including this question of, does the government have the right to take a, a life of its citizen? Like, is, is that even a, one of the, the things that we handed over in the social contract um, in this kind of, you know, uh, philosophical idea of the, of the social contract? Um, so we started thinking about those um, sorts of questions um, in addition, uh, the Enlightenment was also kind of having um, changes in um, or impacting people's religious views. There was kind of a religious shift from a kind of old school Calvinist, um, very Old Testament, very punitive God, vengeful God, to kind of a more New Testament sort of Christianity that was more about a loving and forgiving God. So that was kind of going on in the background as well that was shaping people's ideas about punishment. Um, and then in terms of the revolution directly, um, that had a, a, a number of both practical and ideological effects. Um, one of the practical effects is once you declare independence from England, you need to create a new legal system. Um, and a lot of the states mostly adopted what they had before, but they also had this opportunity to change the way they, that things had been done. Um, and so very quickly states started writing their, their constitutions and they laid out a couple of um, kind of 
things that were relevant to punishment in those constitutions. So in Pennsylvania, for example, they essentially put in the constitution, we have to reform our penal laws. We, we don't want sanguinary, um, essentially bloody laws. Um, and it's better for us to reclaim our citizens than to, um, to destroy them. So enough with capital punishment, basically, enough with corporal punishment. Let's find a way to bring people back to the fold and, and keep them as citizens, because at this point we, we need our citizens. Um, and then they also started passing new penal codes. And so they also used that opportunity to try to think about what would be a Republican punishment. And so this is where we get into the, the more ideology. Um, so there's this one element where um, they didn't want punishments that were kind of monarchical. Um, so capital punishment reeked of monarch uh, monarchy, essentially. Um, this goes back to um, a, a kind of situation between the late 17th century and the early um, uh, 18th century, um, basically the 1680s to 1718 where um, Pennsylvania had passed Penn's great law um, and they said, you know, no more capital punishment except in, in really um, narrow circumstances where we're gonna try incarceration. And the, um, the Crown and, and Parliament didn't like that, the Crown's Council. Um, and so they kind of fought with Pennsylvania back and forth and then officially repealed the law in 1718. And so this episode was used by a number of reformers um, in the kind of revolutionary, uh, revolutionary era and, and immediately afterwards to say, you know, this is this is an example of how we would have been doing punishment, but the, the king stopped us, the parliament stopped us. Um, so, you know, this is monarchy getting in the way of good American uh, punishment to be less brutal than what the British would do. So we're not gonna do that. Um, and we need to go back to what would be a truly American punishment, which is not this kind of brutal approach that kings do, but something that's more kind of um, reformative. Um, and so they had these new um, penal codes that they, they uh, experimented with um, to move away from capital punishment. And then once they had um, this, okay, we're moving away from capital and corporal punishment, what do we do instead? And so that led to essentially the, um, the prison movement, or at least that was one of the, the things that moved to the, led to the prison movement. And then finally, in terms of the impact of the revolution, um, there is also this sense that the, the Republic um, has to survive. It's this, this massive experiment and everybody is watching us and it has to survive. Um, also for our own sakes, it has to survive. Um, but in order for it to survive, we need virtuous citizens. So virtue was like a huge theme for the founding fathers and the generations immediately after. And of course, in their view, criminals are not virtuous citizens. Um, and so they needed a punishment that was gonna, gonna convert these non-virtuous people into virtuous citizens who um, could in theory vote. Um, and so we want people to, you know, to vote well, to be responsible, to be good. Um, the, the phrase they used was industrious, um, industrious and productive citizens, sorry, industrious, useful and productive citizens. Um, and so they, they wanted a punishment that was gonna change people to be helpful to the Republic. And if we don't find a punishment that's gonna help us do that, it's entirely possible that the Republic will fail, that crime will get out of control, that unvirtuous citizens will basically be the downfall of all of us. And we need to move away from, um, from that possibility. So we need a punishment that's gonna protect us. So the revolution had a lot of, uh, a lot of consequences. Um, it is worth noting though, that there is one consequence that the revolution actually had that was a negative consequence on, on changing punishment, um, kind of moving the other way. So if all the things that I've just talked about are kind of pushing us in this direction of away from capital punishment, away from corporal punishment, ultimately towards incarceration, um, there was a, a counter trend, which was the fighting just slowed everything down. So there was like talk about turning to incarceration um, a little bit before the revolution, but it hadn't really caught on yet. 
Um, and then a couple of states tried to authorize state prisons or well, colonial prisons, um, but what eventually became state prisons, like centralized facilities for everyone in the colony, um, for all criminals in the colony to be sent there, or at least the serious ones um, that uh, wouldn't get say capital punishment. Um, and these prisons opened up, including Walnut Street Jail, um, and then immediately, like the following year after they opened, had to be converted to um, uh, basically prisoner of war camps. Um, and so they, essentially the prison movement um, stalled uh, pretty um, dramatically because of the fighting and um, everything that was going on. So it wasn't really until the revolution was over that this stuff just like exploded in terms of the frequency and, and magnitude of the changes that were happening. Um, so that's one kind of uh, alternative or counter um, counter direction that the, the revolution had. Now, throughout the book, at the beginning of the chapters, you have quotes from Philip Selznick. Uh, who was he? What, what was he? What was his significance? Yeah, thank you. So he's um, a sociologist um, from the, the mid 20th century. Um, he was actually one of the founders of my graduate program, just by chance. Um, I had actually initially disliked a bunch of his work because um, a lot of the work in the 1950s and 1960s is just really hard to understand. It's very dense and it's different from how we write things today. Um, which might sound funny to people who aren't academics and so much of our work is dense, but by comparison, it was, it was really hard to get through. Um, but he wrote this great book called TVA and the Grassroots, where he explains that essentially when we're looking at organizations um, like hospitals or government agencies or schools, um, or in my case, prisons, that the people who work in these organizations have as much of an interest in the survival of the organization and their status within the organization um, as they do with achieving the organization's technical goals. And in the early part of the 20th century, organizational scholars believed that, um, that organizations basically could be arranged to efficiently and effectively achieve their goals, especially like profit maximization or how do we you know, produce the most widgets or something like that. And Solznik was part of a group of scholars who said, actually, if we wanna understand how organizations really work, it's not about their technical goals. It's not about how, like efficiency and things like that. We have to really understand the humans that work in organizations and how like the, the technical goals aren't actually the main end in themselves, that there's this other stuff, including the kind of status you get from being that. So like I get a certain status as being a professor of, being a professor at the University of Hawaii or being a sociology professor. And so while I, there's like the practical things that I, I wanna do um, producing research and, and things like that, there's also this kind of status element of it. And so for Selznick, that status element is really important to take into account. And so for my book, I draw from Selznick's framework and, and try to explain um, Eastern kind of under that, that, uh, that guise. Um, because when I was doing my research, I had no other way to explain what I saw happening um, it, it didn't fit any of, uh, of our, our theoretical um, models. I, and I came across Selznick's book um, just by chance. And I realized like, oh my God, this is, this is exactly what's going on at, at Eastern. Um, so yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's Selznick. <laughs> now you talked about use the, his concept of personal institutionalization. What is that? Yeah, so, um, so he uses the term institutionalization um, and that's a word that at this point has so many different terms from like putting somebody in an institution, like a, a mental institution. So institutionalizing them um, more commonly in sociology, it means something that kind of takes hold and is very difficult to move away from. Um, so once it's, it's institutionalized, it's probably gonna stick around for a really long time. So we talk about how the prison is institutionalized as in it's really hard to get rid of it if you, if you wanted to, or if you tried. Um, and uh, Selznick used this concept um, kind of also at a smaller level to talk about 
policies that organizations use or practices within organizations or um, like offices that people held in, in organizations. And so I apply it to the Pennsylvania system that was used at Eastern State Penitentiary, this system of basically round the clock solitary confinement. Um, and I argue that the men who ran the prison um, essentially uh, had a, a, a particular status that they got from, from working at the prison and especially from um, the process of defending Eastern against epic criticism. Um, they spent a lot of time defending it. And so in that process of defending it, they would talk about how great the Pennsylvania system is, how great Eastern was and how great they were. And so in this process of constantly defending it, they were able to say lovely things about themselves, about how they're these benevolent gentlemen um, and they're progressive gentlemen and humanitarian gentlemen and all these things and that they're running the world's best prison. And as the criticism kept coming, they just kept getting to say these things. And so basically defending the prison gave them the opportunity to say these things in a way that, you know, you can't really say this just on a normal, like I can't go around being like, oh yeah, I'm super awesome uh, because that would be weird. But if somebody's you know criticizing me, then I can you know say something like that, and so that um, that gave them the opportunity to do that. Um, and so I argue that they couldn't get rid of the Pennsylvania system, at least not publicly, um, because if they did, they would lose this kind of source of the special status and the way in which they can keep defending themselves and their prison against criticism and kind of puff themselves up and say like you know relative to these local reformers, we know way more about punishment and relative to the legislature who are basically these interlopers who don't know what they're doing, we know way more about punishment in prisons than they do. Um, and so they should really be you know, listening to us. Um, we're the experts, we're you know, the affectionados, like we, we know what we're talking about and all these other people are dilettantes. Um, and so because of that, I argue that the Pennsylvania system became institutionalized or what I call personally institutionalized just to kind of make it clear. I don't mean the other meanings of institutionalization. Um, and so basically it became this thing that they, they had to maintain um, and, uh, and fought really hard against, trying, against any efforts to get rid of it. Well, let's talk in more detail about the system that they were defending. What, what were its characteristics? Yeah, so um, the Pennsylvania system, sometimes called um, the separate system, um, it, it went through a number of different names. But basically, um, under the system, incarcerated people would spend their entire, in theory, they would spend their entire sentence, their entire prison sentence, in a fairly large cell, especially by today's standards. Um, and uh, this was a, a, a cell with like a bed, um, a little wash basin, um, usually some tools for work. Um, and they would spend their life in this cell. They would eat in their cell. They would work in their cell. They would pray in their cell. They would receive um, Sabbath services. Um, uh, on the Sabbath, uh, and they would, you know, do their worship. They would also receive visits from um, approved personnel, which included the prison staff as well as local penal reformers who volunteered to minister to the prisoners, um, basically mentor them, talk to them about morality, um, sometimes teach them to read and write, and those sorts of things. Um, there was also what was called a moral instructor, who was kind of like part uh, minister and part school teacher, essentially. Um, and so all these people would visit them on, on a mostly weekly basis, I would say it varied, um, and basically try to help improve them. And then they would spend their days um, doing work, usually things like shoemaking or cabinetry or chair making, um, weaving, uh, or there was also a number of um, un what was called unskilled labor at the time, like um, bobbin weaving, which is like you have these sticks and you would wind yarn around the sticks and then those bobbins would then go to the weavers and they would use them to, to weave. Um, and so they had a number of different um, uh, things that they could do. 
um, in their cells. And then they also had access to a small private yard attached to their cell where they could go and get additional fresh air and additional exercise. And the, the yard was about the same size as, um, as their cell, but it would give them like a little bit of a change of scenery. Um, and all of these things were designed to kind of make sure that prisoners were as healthy as possible during their incarceration um, to include to improve their reformation. Um, so work and education were considered reformative um, and ultimately to kind of make sure that they made it to the end of their term uh, better than when they came in, better in a kind of um, less criminal sense um, for people at the time. Um, so that was uh, kind of the, the basis of the Pennsylvania system. Now, this Pennsylvania system had a competitor in the Auburn system. What was that? Yeah, so the Auburn system was, um, <laughs> in some ways, the opposite of the Pennsylvania system. In some ways, it's also very similar. For people today, it's kind of like these two sound very similar. But for people at the time, these were like polar opposites. So under the Auburn system, um, prisoners would spend their days mostly working in a kind of factory style um, uh, basically a factory um, or industrial shop um, in the prison. Um, and they were required to work silently and also like not look at each other because they were the uh, reformers and administrators were worried that the prisoners could communicate with each other by, by looking at each other. So they weren't allowed to look at each other or speak to each other, but they would be doing this factory style labor. Um, this is also uh, kind of one of the, the early sources of the prisoner stripes. So they would be wearing these striped uniforms um, and they uh, would then um, walk in lockstep, which is kind of this like shuffle march. Um, so they'd be these long lines of, of prisoners um, walking in, in lockstep to their cells. And then their cells were pretty small. They're about three and a half feet wide. Um, and they would basically spend their evenings in their cell. Um, and that was, that was the Auburn system. Factory style work during the, the day and solitary confinement at night. Can you talk about uh, solitary confinement? How did they arrive at this idea of solitary confinement as as a good source of punishment. You mentioned in the book about Maine's experiments where you say that the cells resembled pits rather than cells. They were dark, cold, partially subterranean. Prisoners entered from the top through an aperture two feet square, secured by an iron grating, and then descended by a removable ladder. It sounds terrifying. Yeah, so, um, so basically what happens, to understand why solitary confinement became so popular in the 1820s, you have to go back to right after the American Revolution um, so the, the 1820s prisons are actually our second generation of prisons in the United States. Um, the first generation prisons start popping up um, in 1785 and then the 1790s, um, where uh, a number of states basically were trying to reform their jails. And jails at the time were these um, basically uh, congregate facilities where you have um, not only men and women and, and uh, children and, and uh, elderly people, but you also have um, accused criminals as well as uh, debtors, debtors' families, vagrants, um, prostitutes, uh, just like a whole mix of, of people, sometimes witnesses awaiting trial. Um, so it's like a really diverse group of people all in like one place and they were pretty filthy. Um, they were not well kept up. They were, the people were not well cared for. Um, they're also massive spreaders of disease. Um, and that was a major concern as well. Um, and so for a number of reasons, reformers started to kind of set their sights on these jails and, and wanted to reform them and make them healthier, but also kind of get rid of the non-criminal population and just get the convicted criminals in, in one area, um, the accused criminals in another area, and then like the debtors and vagrants and, and people kind of also separated from others. So we started getting this um, prison movement. So I, I distinguish between jails and prisons. Jails are places that are for mixed populations, including um, mostly people who are not getting punished, um, whereas, uh, or sorry, are awaiting their punishment um, at the time. 
Um, and then prisons are basically places for people who have already been convicted of usually a serious crime and are there for punishment. Whereas for jails, you're not there for punishment. You're awaiting trial. You might be awaiting your punishment. Maybe you, you had your punishment, but you still owe fees and fines. And so you're going to be confined until you, you do that. Um, or you're just not even a criminal. You're just there because you have to pay back the debt or because um, you're kind of been swept up off the street for vagrancy or something. And you're just there to like uh, essentially do a workhouse um, stint or something. Um, but they're kind of a separate thing. Um, so we start getting these prisons in this kind of modern conception of prisons um, in the 1790s. And um, they were not that different from jails in terms of what they looked like. Uh, like they still included these large congregate rooms where people were kind of milling about. Um, they did start to try to include labor. And so they started to add workshops and things. Um, and they also did a number of reforms to protect the health of the, uh, of the people in these prisons. Um, but they still kind of had a lot of problems. And by the 1810s, they were starting to kind of implode. Um, so their prisoners were setting fires. People were having mass escapes. Um, there were riots and things like that that had to be put down by the National Guard. Um, and so this first generation of prisons was, was kind of a disaster. And reformers were worried because, um, well, they're worried for a number of reasons, but one of the things that, they're, that they really kind of focused their energies on is that the, what the prisons looked like in practice was very different from what they had initially imagined. And some of the early discussions about prisons were kind of focusing around this idea of solitary confinement, but that had never really been implemented. Um, in uh, Walnut Street Jail, for example, they had actually authorized solitary confinement, but only for the worst of the worst criminals. Um, but in practice, that didn't actually happen. They used the solitary cells for punishment. So if you misbehaved in, in prison, then you would go to the solitary cells. And so the reformers in the 1810s were thinking like, we have to go back to the origins of revision. We need solitary confinement. And in particular, solitary confinement will help with a number of things, including we won't have riots because if people are in solitary, they can't possibly communicate with each other and they can't organize. So, you know, that's good. Um, and also they were, they were especially worried about this, um, this concern that people would basically catch criminality from one another. Um, and this was something that kind of happened throughout the, the post-revolutionary era. Um, people were worried that first in the jails that like non-criminals would catch criminality from the criminals. So um, a young child in with his family um, who's, you know, there for his father's debt or something might listen to the stories of a highwayman, sorry, highwayman, um, telling them these like romantic stories of, of their banditry and things and kind of get swept up in the idea of criminality, maybe learn the tricks of the trade and then decide to become a criminal themselves. Um, and so here they were, this innocent young lad who, you know, was just there because of their father's debt. Uh, they had done nothing wrong, but now they're going to be a criminal. And so part of the, um, the initial prison movement was to uh, avoid those sorts of circumstances. So we want to distinguish the criminals from the non-criminals. But then once you do that, then there's also this concern about, well, there's the kind of more sophisticated criminals, the hardened criminals, the ones that have been at this for a really long time, and the ones that are maybe kind of more circumstantial criminals that are kind of just dipping their toe in the water, have just like tried criminality, um, or maybe they're doing it out of necessity and they just need to kind of they need to, if somebody gave them a job, then they wouldn't need to do crime or something like that. Um, and so there is this, this effort to try to prevent um, criminals from kind of infecting each other with their criminality and especially preventing the hardened criminals from further influencing the, the less hardened criminals, the newer criminals. Um, and so solitary confinement was gonna help with that. They also believed that solitary confinement would help with um, reflection. So if you're in there and you have nothing else to do, you're just gonna think about your sins um, and so hopefully that will help. Um, and so for a number of reasons, solitary confinement was seen as, as helpful. 
And then there was this kind of other dimension where briefly people talked about it as kind of a punitive thing. So um, the mood in the 1810s was um, kind of split. Like there are some people who wanted to bring back capital punishment and thought, you know, this prison experiment went on for long enough, but like it's not working out. We need to go back to the old days and have those, those painful public punishments and, you know, get people right basically. Um, and so solitary confinement was also seen a little bit as a, as a punitive move, but that was, I would say kind of a minority view for a lot of people. Um, it was mostly kind of supposed to be this reformative um, effort. And so for a number of reasons from a, a number of different camps, people thought the solitary confinement would be kind of the fix to all of their problems. And so these second generation prisons um, basically went towards uh, solitary confinement. And as you mentioned, the, the very first efforts to do solitary confinement went very badly. Um, so Maine um, had their experiment where they, they didn't even really have a proper prison. Um, they had these pits, uh, but they were actually um, kind of borrowing from, um, from Auburn uh, State Prison in New York before they had the Auburn system um, in place. They, um, they went for this uh, experiment to do nothing but solitary confinement in, um, in their tiny little cells. So they had these three feet wide cells um, and people, they were also required to, the, the prisoners were required to stand in the cell for like eight hours a day. Um, and they would just do nothing basically for the duration of that. And so within just a few weeks, prisoners were suffering, suffering from muscle atrophy, from disease, from um, mental decompensation. There are a number of, um, of self-harm and suicide attempts um, and a number of fatalities. And so they kind of put an end to that and said, okay, we, we can't do that type of solitary confinement, but a number of, um, of states before word got out about this experiment going so badly, um, a number of states tried to do uh, exactly what Auburn had done, because initially people were saying, this is going great. And they didn't tell people that it was actually leading to atrocity. Um, and so at Western State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, they also authorized um, continuous solitary confinement with no work. And the architecture of the prison didn't allow for that system. Um, essentially the, the ventilation in the cells was, was too bad. Prisoners were gonna get sick. Uh, and so very quickly the prison administrators had to decide to take the prisoners out of their cells, which completely um, violated the whole purpose of, of having people in solitary confinement. The prisoners were able to mix together. They were able to escape. Um, they were able to like talk and hang out. Um, and it just like reformation from their viewpoint was, was essentially dead. Um, and so that was seen as like another failure of solitary confinement. So by the time Eastern comes around, they're really trying to do solitary confinement rights. They do those big cells with um, a lot of ventilation, trying to build an exercise, giving prisoners um, mental stimulation with the work and with the visits, um, and just basically trying to avoid all the failures of the earlier versions of solitary confinement. Now your book focuses on Eastern State Penitentiary. When was it built? So Eastern um, opened in 1829. It was authorized in 1821. Um, and it was basically built uh, pretty continuously um, uh, throughout um, uh, about 1826, I think, um, into like, I, I think construction was still ongoing in 1835. Um, they had, uh, there was a, a problem early on where they realized um, Eastern was built for a capacity of 250 cells. And then they realized very quickly that they were gonna have one, many more prisoners than 250. And so they had to kind of change the, the architecture um, of the prison. And so if you look at the original plan, it's this like perfect um, kind of circular um, prison with like all these wings, kind of like a, a, a spokes on, on a wheel. Um, and then the, uh, like they built the first half of it, the first three cell blocks, but then the second half, they had to kind of change the, the, the nature of those cells. And so those are double story cells and they're much longer um, prison wings than the, the first three. 
Um, and so that, um, that kind of delayed construction a little bit, but it wasn't fully constructed when it opened in 1829. Um, and then there were a number of repairs and things that they had to do. And they kept adding on things like different shops and like a cookhouse and a, uh, a greenhouse was added, I think in 1842 or thereabouts. Um, and then uh, construction increased again in the 1870s when they had overcrowding and they had to um, build more. And then there's another cell block added in, um, I, I think it opened in um, 1911 or thereabouts. Uh, so construction was kind of continuous, but um, basically 1820s is, uh, is when construction started. If a prisoner was arriving at the prison for the first time and being in process, what was that experience like for them? Yeah, so um, basically they would, they would come in, the sheriff of their county would escort them. Um, and so they would probably come by wagon or, or horse or something like that. And they would go through the, the main, uh, the big, I think it's like a portocollis at, at Eastern. They would go through and then they would meet with the warden and um, ostensibly it, 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 there's some conflicting records on this, but they would have other um, uh, guards of the prison would also be present at the person's arrival. And the idea was that they were supposed to look at them, which is kind of funny because this conflicts with this um, ethos or, or mythos um, that the prisoners were not supposed to be recognizable to the, um, the guards. That's not actually correct because the guards were supposed to look at them and, and know what they looked like. Um, and they would have basically this intake ceremony um, they would usually be bathed um, and cleaned and, you know, make sure that they don't have any lice or anything like that. They would be um, given new clothes. Their old clothes would be stored for them. Um, and then uh, they would be interviewed by the warden um, with the kind of prison secretary present, um, as well as any guards that they could spare. Um, and they would have this book in front of them that would contain um, all the prisoners um, in their custody or who had ever been in custody. And they would ask for their name, their age, um, where they were born. Um, what they did for a living, uh, their alcohol tendencies, how frequently they drank and things like that. If they were married, um, they would also record sometimes their physical um, uh, dimensions. They would always include the person's complexion. Um, they would also sometimes include like scars or, or things like that, any markings, um, tattoos and stuff like that. Um, they would uh, also record where the person had been sentenced, what their crime was, what their sentence length was. Um, probably some other stuff that I'm now forgetting, but basically a very uh, detailed um, uh, interview, um, which for my purposes is great because this is a lot of data um, for other researchers as well. Like we, we analyzed these, these books. So it's, it's really great that they took all this, this data for us. Um, but that wasn't the point at the, at the time they wanted to do it to analyze their prison populations. Um, so after they, they did this kind of interview and the warden would kind of tell the prisoner what the rules were of, of the prison, then they would escort them to their cell um, in the early days, they did it um, not through the wings of the corridor because they, the, the cells actually didn't open from inside the, the corridors. They, they did it from the, um, the attached yards. And so they would go in through the yard and then they would enter the cell um, and then maybe talk to the prisoner a little bit more and then kind of leave them there. Um, and the prisoner would have like a, a fully decked out cell. They would have like um, a comb and uh, bed sheets and a bed and uh, tools and things like that. Or sometimes they wouldn't give them tools initially uh, maybe after a few days, they would kind of let them adjust and then they would give them their tools. Um, but that's basically the, uh, the kind of processing um, as it looked like uh, when they first came in. Now, who were the people who ran the prison? You mentioned that they, they thought of themselves as gentlemen reformers. Yeah, great question. So, um, so essentially the, the prison administrators, um, the kind of uh, official designation, so there's like the guards at the bottom and these were primarily working class people um, sometimes they would be um, kind of expert craftsmen, um, but not like top of their, of their um, profession craftsmen, but people who 
knew how to do crafts and then they would train the prisoners how to do crafts, but they were also kind of guards at the same time. Um, but above the guards, that's like the prison administration. So we have at the lowest end, the moral instructor, um, who is a minister, um, usually a Protestant Christian um, of some kind. Um, and then above him, um, we have the staff physician. Um, and the, this was a, a physician, um, usually in the, the early um, uh, decade, I would say, decade plus, um, this was somebody who basically was doing this. Um, they were paid, but it was kind of like a voluntary thing. They would only be at the prison like two days a week, and then they would maintain their private practice um, in town. So Eastern at the time was about two miles away from, um, from Philadelphia proper, uh, what was then Philadelphia. It's of course expanded massively since then. Um, and so they'd have to like ride out in their, in their horse or carriage. Um, and so they'd come out to the prison. Um, so he would usually live in, in Philadelphia and just kind of show up um, either when he was called, um, which there could be a big delay or um, like on his normal schedule, he would just plan to be there on like say Monday and Thursday or something. Um, and then above the, the staff position um, was the, uh, the warden. Um, and so the, the warden is kind of like the, what we typically think of, of the warden. Um, so he kind of set the, uh, uh, he hired and fired um, the guards. Um, he sometimes clashed with the physician because they kind of sometimes shared responsibility in terms of de determining um, certain things about how prisoners would be treated. Um, and in particular, the warden was in charge of punishment and the, the ward, or sorry, the um, physician had to sign off on punishments to make sure that the prisoner was properly healthy to be punished um, in, in the additional way that they're gonna punish him um, or her, um, because we actually had both male and female prisoners in, in Eastern at the time. Um, so the warden basically uh, did the day-to-day -day business of, of the prison. And then um, the kind of policy was set uh, by the board of inspectors. Um, and this was a five-man um, panel. It was always men, always white men. Um, basically, everyone who worked at the prison, um, as far as I know, was a white man with, um, with the exception of eventually there was a, a matron, um, a, a, a woman uh, in charge of the female prisoners, um, kind of like the, the female guard for the, prisoner, for the female prisoners. Um, so other than her, as far as I know, all white men, um, and especially the kind of administrator branch tended to be kind of middle and upper class people. Um, so, uh, so the board of inspectors, uh, so they set the policy, they chose the warden, um, they did a little election each year and the board of inspectors themselves were selected by the governor um, on a, uh, every two years, um, they were either selected or, or reelected um, by the governor. And so they kind of set the policy for the prison um, the warden would sometimes consult with them to discuss punishment discussions. Sometimes the board of inspectors, um, sometimes the inspectors like to be present at various punishments and things like that. Um, and then all of these people would also visit with the prisoners on a regular basis. Um, and then they would also write reports on an annual basis um, to the legislature telling them like what's going on at the prison. Um, so that's the kind of uh, bureaucratic structure of the prison um, for most of the 19th century. It, it expanded towards the later 19th century, but for the period I'm looking at, which is um, basically up, up to um, and right after the uh, Civil War. Now, once the prison was built, uh, there was this ongoing competition with the Auburn system. And were, how, how was the, the Pennsylvania system faring in, in relationship with the two? Were other states picking, us up, picking up the system? They were going for the Auburn system. So the um, the Pennsylvania system is is like super well known, um, and it's one of those things that we always cover in our criminology textbooks. But um, people sometimes don't realize that it was very unpopular. Um, it was only adopted at most by four other by four prisons total, including Eastern. So Western State Penitentiary adopted um, the Pennsylvania system. Um, 
as it was done at Eastern, um, and they, I think, officially started using it around 1837 um, because they had to tear down the prison and rebuild it in order to make it functional again because the, the early architectural problems. Um, and then they got rid of it um, right around the American Revolution. Um, and then New Jersey and Rhode Island also adopted it. Um, Rhode Island got rid of it after just a few years. Um, and then uh, New Jersey officially got rid of it after about two decades, a little, a little more than two decades. Um, and so those are the only other states that use the Pennsylvania system. Um, other states considered it. A lot of um, prison administrators and um, government officials came by and, and toured Eastern and they wanted to see um, what it looked like, if it was gonna be feasible, if they thought it was a good system. Um, and they read all the reports about it and they consumed all the literature kind of explaining the two systems. Um, but they, they, except for the, the three other prisons, they always went with the Auburn system. So basically every prison in the United States um, up to the American Civil War and even a little bit past then um, was model, modeled on the Auburn system, the, um, the one that came out of New York with the uh, factory style labor. So how, how did the administrators respond as their system was being rejected around the country? They were not happy. Um, it was they took it as essentially like a personal um, a personal defeat um, and a personal insult, um, especially because a lot of times um, there would be some sort of statement given about why a prison was uh, was adopted or why they why another prison adopted the Auburn system, and so the um, the the administrators at Eastern would say things like you know oh this is wrong. Um, and then the, the other big thing is um, they were also openly criticized by a number of, of penal reformers. Um, so the Boston Prison Discipline Society, especially, um, they, they began in 1826. Um, and initially they liked the Pennsylvania system. They thought it was a, a kind of good idea. They were kind of like a little reticent and kind of like waiting to fully make a conclusion. But they were like, yeah, this, this seems good. It's you know just a variation on the Auburn system, um, which is really interesting considering how different um, their views were later. Um, but just a, a few years after that, um, shortly after um, a, a scandal erupted at, at Eastern, um, they flipped the switch basically and they were like, this Pennsylvania system is terrible. Um, and so the organizer basically made it his life's mission to like set out and destroy the Pennsylvania system. Um, and so they were um, one group of, of a number of people who would criticize the Pennsylvania system, um, saying that it was cruel and inhumane because it used solitary confinement. Um, never mind that the Auburn system also used solitary confinement just at night. Um, never mind that the Auburn system also whipped their prisoners when they misbehaved, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, they also argued that it was dangerous to prisoners' um, mental and physical health. Um, so again, they were worried about those early experiments with solitary confinement that went, went so badly. They were sure the Pennsylvania system was going to lead to massive um, levels of insanity and, and death and illness. Um, they argued that it was too expensive and unprofitable. Um, by comparison to the Auburn system, which in theory seems like it's going to be nice and profitable and efficient because it's using this factory style mode and that's much more efficient than this craft style labor that, that Eastern is using or the Pennsylvania system is using. And then finally, they argued that it would be ineffective and impractical because of all these issues, they argued that the prison administrators are going to have to break their own system. Um, so either the prisoners are going to find a way to communicate with each other, and so reformation is not going to happen because they're going to, you know, pollute each other um, in the, the ways that they, they thought about back then. Um, or alternatively, because of these health consequences, prison administrators are going to have to remove the prisoners from their cells, get them fresh air, or they're going to have to, like, allow them to communicate with each other so they can kind of stop de decompensating and, um, and avoid any mental illness problems. 
Um, and so those were the four kind of biggest critiques of the Pennsylvania system. Um, and they were just kind of like coming like a, a, a fire hose at, at Eastern. And um, so the prison administrators basically spent the bulk of their, um, of their annual reports and a lot of their um, other writings as well defending the prison against um, against those uh, those annual, uh, against those criticisms. Now you mentioned visitors to Eastern, and it almost sounded like it was a tourist destination. It was, yeah. Um, it was, uh, in fact, they, um, the, the board of inspectors, the, the head of the board of inspectors, um, the president of the board would be in charge of, of distributing tickets. And so there are these um, like tourist manuals for visiting Philadelphia. Like, what are the attractions if you come to Philadelphia um, in say 1851? And Eastern had a little, um, a little entry in, in these books. And they would say, you know, if you wanna get a ticket to visit, and go see the law offices of, of Richard Vox and he will give you a ticket. Um, and so you could tour the prison. Uh, tourists usually weren't allowed to interact with the prisoners. Um, they, I, I think like they would pay like a quarter or something like that, which in, in today's uh, time would be kind of comparable to what you'd pay for going to a tourist attraction. Um, so like, you know, it was enough that like normal people could go, you didn't have to be super wealthy, but because it's normal people, they didn't want those normal people to be interacting with, um, with the incarcerated people. However, there were special visitors who would come um, usually as uh, kind of uh, political liaisons. Um, so uh, Alexis de, de Tocqueville, for example, visited um, the prison as part of his tour of American prisons. And um, so he wrote about it. Charles Dickens wrote about Eastern State Penitentiary in his um, American Notes, this like diary that he kept when he visited America. Um, and he's, he told the, um, the inspectors, he said, your Eastern State Penitentiary is like right up there with Niagara Falls is the two destinations I most wanted to see. Um, and he was pretty disappointed by his trip to Eastern. Um, and then there are other dignitaries that came, um, numbers of, of royalty um, and heads of, of states, um, uh, high level um, kind of legislators from um, around the country, but also around the world. Um, so it, it really was a tourist destination. Like people would visit prisons. It was um, like, you have to understand that prisons at the time were considered a crowning achievement of American progress. It was, you know, we're not just this, you know, fresh new republic that's setting the way for everyone else. We're also changing how we punish people because the rest of the world was mostly punishing in, in kind of the, the ways that we had done before. Um, I forgot to mention banishment was another punishment, but that was less common um, in the, uh, the later colonial period. Um, so the rest of the world is still doing um, basically corporal and capital punishments, lots of torture-based punishments, um, or in some cases, they also use banishment. And so we were among the first, um, we were kind of uh, competing with England a little bit there um, in terms of switching to, to prisons, but we, we got them beat. Um, so we were among the first um, and really the first to kind of have this real um, prison facility. And so people wanted to see it and wanted to know, is this something we should adopt in our country? Um, and in fact, that's why uh, de, de, uh, de Tocqueville um, visited. He was there as a representative um, for France uh, to inform on the question of whether or not we should be adopting um, American style prisons. And if so, should we do the Auburn system or the Pennsylvania system um, or some kind of amalgam of them, which uh, is what most European countries ended up doing was really more of an amalgam um, of, of each of the two models. Um, so yeah, huge tourist destination, both for, um, for locals, for out of towners, and essentially for celebrities and, and politicians at the time. Now, you also write about uh, uh, correspondence between two prisoners, Elizabeth Valora Elwell and Albert Green Jackson. What did you find in their letters? Yeah, so these were two, um, two people um, who were incarcerated during um, the early part of the American Civil War. 
um, so like 1861, 1862. Um, and they had a love affair when they were in prison. Um, they, they met in prison. Um, and this is already like, this is a, a huge indicator that, you know, the system that I've described, that's not actually what happened in practice. So all the stuff about prisoners never leaving their cell except for the private yard and that they never see another prisoner, um, all the descriptions, both from critics and from uh, supporters alike, we're just wrong. That's that's not what happened behind the scenes, and and this uh, set of love letters illustrates that. And so, um, in terms of like what they contained, there was a lot of times like poetry, um, like really sappy stuff going back and forth. Um, my favorite part of the correspondence, um, I don't think I included this in the book, but it's in an, in an article I wrote. Um, Elizabeth uh, is um, so these are, are two young people. I think she was seventeen and he was twenty one. Um, and you know, so this is like you know probably first love roughly speaking for for each of them um and there's just so much drama in their relationship like it's just it's so normal it's just two people living their life that happen to be in prison um so at one point elizabeth gets nervous because um albert's gonna leave prison before she does and she doesn't believe that he's gonna be faithful to her once once he leaves the prison um and so she starts sending him letters from another person that she just completely creates um i forget the name of of this fake person um, but basically this, this fake person is writing to Albert and she's like, I'm very beautiful and I've seen you around and I'm really interested in you basically. And, um, and is trying to like get him to express interest in this fake person to test his resolve and his commitment to her. Um, and eventually he figures it out and it's pretty, I kind of think it's, it's fairly obvious. Um, but uh, yeah, so she's just basically, um, you know, very anxious about the relationship. Um, I only have one surviving letter from him, um, so I, I don't know how, how, how much he responded to this other than through how she describes his reactions in her own letters. Um, but these are just fantastic letters for so many reasons, because first of all, most people in, in Eastern were not literate. So to get um, one was a white woman and the other was a black man. And so like these are two people who are like among the least likely to have literacy um, in the 19th century in this time. Um, and on top of that, they're they're prisoners. And again, like most most incarcerated people at Eastern, just were not literate. That was one of the things they were they were taught in the course of um, of their uh, of their incarceration. Um, and so they were able to exchange these letters. So that itself, um, just like the literacy part of it, was really fascinating. Um, another element of it, though, is just that they were able to to exchange these letters. And so um, the letters themselves kind of give you some indication of how they were able to do it. So like. Um, both of them were uh, authorized to do out of cell labor. Um, so probably like cleaning up around the prison um, in Elizabeth's case. And um, maybe Albert uh, might've been assigned to like um, some other, uh, either like a, a cook's, um, the cook's house or like the big shop or um, some other shop on the, um, on the campus of the prison. And so both of them were authorized to leave their cells for their work. Um, and because they weren't very well supervised, supervised when they were out of their cells, um, they were able to basically have fun um, and gossip and, and exchange, like, and basically build a relationship. Um, and at some point, um, they were able to actually escape um, from, uh, from, I think, their work duties. It's, it's not super clear, but they basically had a little rendezvous in the coal cellar of, of the prison um, and were able to basically meet up, like, without anybody around. Um, and so this is just, like, mind-blowing. It's like, they, they really, like, the amount of freedom they had, like, it, I mean, it's not like, it's not like, you know, good freedom. It's like not, they had like free reign of the prison, but like the fact that they were able to con conduct this, this relationship and have this rendezvous, it's so different from what the, the administrators described and from what the critics described and what all the visitors described of, 
this place where the prisoners are like in a tomb and they never see a living soul again, which already isn't true because they they have the the official visits from the um, the administrators and things, um, or that the prison is like quiet at all times, like all of it, like it's just it wasn't true. And um, maybe it was true in like the very first year, but after that, it's just not true anymore. Um, and so their relationship shows that. Um, so it's just, and then on top of that, it's also just really fascinating that the letter survived um, because like that, um, you know, that like the amount of things they would have had to survive to, to end up in an archive today is also just mind blowing. So as a, as a historian, um, that's also like really fascinating to me. So yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting find. <laughs> And I'm, I'm not the first one to, to find it, I should, I should emphasize. Now, the prison had a pretty long life. Uh, what, what happened in the 1890s and the early 20th century? At, at that point, were, were, was the Pennsylvania system still trying to be functional? Yeah, um, in some sense trying, uh, but basically failing. So, um, so the American Revolution, or sorry, the American Civil War um, ended in 1865 and around the country, there was um, kind of a crime wave as well as a prison, uh, a spike in the prison population. And, and at Eastern, that certainly happened. Um, so by 1866, um, there was officially more people coming into the prison than they had cells for. And so the administrators had to start doubling up the, um, the prisoners um, into um, in, in basically two or three people into a cell. Um, and so that continued um, for a while and the administrators were begging for relief um, to send some of the prisoners over to Western um, or to have some sort of um, change to uh, the sentencing um, uh, restrictions um, or like letting people out early, um, anything to help them or funds to build more cells at the prison so they could accommodate a, a larger population. And uh, the legislature basically ignored most of these calls for quite a while um, until essentially it was too late. So the legislature eventually gave like too little too late essentially. And so they did authorize um, a new cell block to be built or a few new cell blocks to be built. But at this point, the, um, the prison population was just even more than what they could have accommodated in these, in these new cells. Um, and so this was kind of going on, but for like about a decade after this had started, the administrators were still trying to keep the Pennsylvania system going um, and trying to, and like singing the praises of solitary confinement. But by about the middle of the 1870s, the contradiction was, was too much. And um, they increasingly kind of shifted gears and just kind of stopped talking about solitary confinement or the term they used was separate confinement. They just kind of stopped using that term completely. Um, and instead they talked about the Pennsylvania system of individual treatment. Um, and the description of it was not really that different from what they had described before. It's just that they left out the solitary confinement part. Um, and so that basically was going on for a couple of decades um, after. Uh, and then it wasn't until 1913 that the legislature officially authorized the Pennsylvania system to end. Um, and that happened because um, the administrators finally said, and I think 1911 or so, they said like, look, we haven't been using the Pennsylvania system for decades. We can't, um, like we have like three people in a cell. This is ridiculous. We are breaking the law and we would really appreciate it if you would allow us to um, you know, not break the law by either giving us the funds to you know, divert this, this uh, prison population to another prison, let us make more cells, or just allow us to not use the Pennsylvania system anymore. Um, and so the, the legislature complied and, and passed this law. Um, and in, in the meantime, there are a number of other changes going on as well. Um, prisons in general are starting to change. They're becoming much more bureaucratic. Um, the number of people who worked at the prison and kind of especially formal offices increased. They started getting like a, a staff surgeon and things like that, a staff dentist, um, a school teacher. 
Um, the training for, for the guards became um, a lot more stringent. Um, so just a lot started changing in this time period. And um, so basically by the late 19th century, the Pen Pennsylvania system as it had been in practice for about five decades was unrecognizable. Um, also, I should mention prisoners were allowed to start reading newspapers, which they hadn't been before, and they were allowed to get visits from their family, which they hadn't been before. So it just, it was completely different by the end of the century. Now, we only have about a minute left, but uh, you mentioned that, that this prison is taught in a lot of classes. What is its legacy today? Yeah, it's, um, it's still kind of remembered as one of the things not to do, I would say. It's, it's still mostly rec remembered for its use of solitary confinement. Um, and I would say the biggest legacy is people often refer to it as the first supermax, which is super problematic because supermaxes, which are these new types of prisons that we started getting in the 1980s, are completely different from, from Eastern State Penitentiary. The only thing they have in common is that they use solitary confinement, um, but they have incredibly different purposes and they don't have all the kind of bells and whistles that the Pennsylvania system did. So sometimes people think like, oh, well, we've basically had supermaxes going back to the beginning. And it's like, no, we haven't. Like this is this really isn't a new thing. Like that's why we we study these supermaxes and why they're they're so like interesting and and you know for a lot of people scary um, developments. Um, they're they're nothing like um, uh, the the Pennsylvania system. Um, and so I would say that's probably one of the biggest legacies and uh, especially misconceptions of um, of Eastern. Um, but just that that um, kind of remembrance of the solitary confinement and that a lot of people went insane and um, uh, and had health problems. Um, and I also think that's problematic because because it's associated with Eastern specifically and not all prisons back then, um, people are forgetting that actually all prisons back then had these bad health consequences. Insanity rates were really high at all prisons. Illness rates were really high at all prisons. It's, it wasn't just Eastern. Um, and the fact that people believe these criticisms of the Pennsylvania system is kind of con um, contributing to that, uh, that development where we think it's only the worst version of the prison and not actually all the prisons that we used had these negative consequences. Well, we've been speaking with Ashley Rubin. She is the author of The Deviant Prison, Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary and the Origins of America's Modern Penal System, 1829 to 1913. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.